Hello and welcome to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast. I'm Pete. In last week's episode, Dave Andres talked through his experience with Mr John in the aftermath of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Centre in New York. I'm pretty sure that that's the first time anyone has documented the work that went on to deliver and service portable restrooms at Ground Zero after those terrible events. And there's been a lot of really positive feedback about that episode. It's already drawn more listeners in its first week than any other episode of the podcast so far. When I first talked to Dave about sharing his World Trade Center story, Hurricane Ida had just hit the United States. Once again, portable restroom operators were doing their bit to respond to the need for toilets, showers and wash basins among communities most affected by the storm. And as I talked with Dave, we came up with the idea for this episode, which is going to look at the steps that restroom operators can take to best prepare to provide an emergency response when disasters occur. Now I'll start by defining some key terms. These aren't set in stone and you may have your own ideas, but I thought it would just be useful to describe what I think I'm talking about before we get too far into the show. So what is emergency response? Primarily, I'm talking about the provision of toilets, showers and handwashing facilities to the emergency services, recovery teams and the wider population at short notice in times of unexpected need. That need could come from the scene of a crime, a major incident or an accident, weather events or a natural catastrophe such as earthquakes, fires or floods. Those events typically occur with little or no warning and they tend to need portable restrooms because they knock out the regular infrastructure like sewers and water supply or they occur in remote locations where there simply aren't any plumbed local services. Emergency response situations range in scale from small localised incidents where maybe just one or two restrooms are required for a relatively short period of time, all the way up to huge operations like the one we saw at Grand Zero where hundreds of units were deployed for months on end. The common feature is that the emergency response situation falls outside the regular scope of routine, planned, day-to-day business normally carried out by the provider. In some respects, that's quite similar to special events such as weddings, festivals or fates, except the response to those is usually planned and prepared well in advance. You don't usually get asked to send toilets to a planned event at short notice or with no notice. Whatever the scale of the situation or incident, the emergency and disaster response is often described as a linear process with five key stages. These are known as the five R's. Reduction, readiness, response, recovery and reconstruction. And I'll talk through each of those in turn. Reduction is about all the things you can do to prepare before the emergency occurs that will lessen the impact of the disaster on you and your team. At home, you might secure bookshelves to the wall so they don't fall over in an earthquake. In a business, you might make sure that all of your key information systems work if they're offline. Readiness involves making sure that you are prepared for if and when the emergency occurs. It's typified by planning and training so that everything is in place and everyone in the team knows exactly what they need to do when the time comes. Response is also known as the rescue phase. It begins as soon as the emergency occurs and people understand what's happened. You'll get the call to put plans into action and start deploying resources on the ground. The immediate priority in this phase is usually to save life and rescue any survivors. In the recovery phase, the focus moves to establishing systems that allow the community to get back to normal or as near as normal as possible. After the Christchurch earthquakes in 2010 and 11, this phase involved removing all the debris from collapsed buildings, installing temporary pump stations and above-ground sewer lines and finding temporary accommodation for offices and schools where their buildings had been destroyed. 
And the last phase is reconstruction, the long-term rebuild, and this can go on for many, many years. Now, planners often depict the five R's as a straight-line linear process, where each stage is completed before the next one begins. I don't actually think that's the case. In my experience, the five stages aren't always separate, and they don't always occur in the same order. They often overlap. That said, the five R's model is a useful tool because it helps us understand the complexities of what is often a really confusing situation. With all that in mind, today's episode is focused on what portable restroom operators can do to prepare for the first two phases, reduction and readiness. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to look at the other three stages and hopefully talk with some restroom providers about their experiences in actual disasters. Before we go any further, this is a good point to pose a really fundamental question. Do you, as a portable restroom operator, want to be involved in this type of work? And I mean that really seriously. If your company is not set up or equipped to get involved, you have the right to say no. If providing a daily service to 50 or 100 additional units would stretch your team and undermine the service you provide to your regular clients, is it okay to decline? Well, I think it is, except of course, in some jurisdictions, emergency response legislation may give the local, regional or national agencies the power to requisition essential equipment such as portable toilets and vacuum trucks. That happened in Christchurch after the earthquakes in 2010 and 2011. When the government declared a civil emergency, portable toilets were deemed assets of importance under the legislation. That meant their allocation had to be coordinated by civil defence and emergency management, and consequently, any company supplying portable toilets had to ignore requests whether they came from residents, businesses, rest homes or large events. All of that was covered in a research report from the University of Canterbury not long after the quakes, and I'll put a link to that report in the notes for today's show. If federal or state authorities do take control of your restrooms, your company will be part of the emergency response whether you like it or not. And at that point, I would ask, would you feel more comfortable providing that service with your staff using your trucks and your equipment than you would if it was requisitioned and taken away by the military or other operators? I've learnt from experience that if your team is responsible for your gear, it's less likely to get damaged, you stand a better chance of knowing where it is, and you're more likely to get paid. When equipment is requisitioned and placed under other people's control, it disappears. I honestly can't tell you how many road barriers, fence panels and portable toilets just vanished during the recovery work after the Kaikoura earthquake in October 2016. It would have been worth thousands and thousands of dollars. All that aside, if you are a restroom operator and you don't want to supply the disaster market, I do think that's fine. There's nothing worse than getting a call from the police as you've just sat down for dinner asking for two toilets at the scene of a crime within the next half hour. Well, there is, and that's getting the same call at 3am when you're snuggled up and fast asleep in bed. And you know, it's better to set your limits than find yourself out of your depth and putting the rest of your business at risk. I think many restroom operators respond to this type of work because they're good people with a sense of duty. They also understand that if they don't respond, there's probably not anyone else who will, especially in smaller towns and more remote locations where they might be the only provider. And of course, let's not lose sight of the fact that emergency response also provides an opportunity to generate additional revenue. You might not be able to budget for it and you'd be foolish to borrow against it because it may never happen. But when it does occur, it can pay really well, especially if you factor in out-of-hours and weekend call-outs. So let's agree that yes, you're in, and you're going to respond when the Chief of Police, Mayor or Governor calls to ask for help. 
While I'm not going to talk about special events in this episode, it is worth pointing out that there are a lot of parallels between responding to emergencies and supplying restrooms to special events. As Dave explained last week, the two are in fact very closely related. After 9-11, Mr John was able to respond and deliver 750 toilets to Ground Zero in two days because those units had only just been deployed to the Susan G. Komen breast cancer walk. The lessons I share today can and do equally apply to planned events such as festivals and fairs and agricultural shows as they do to disaster response. Reduction strategies enable a restroom operator to reduce the impact of an emergency situation on their day-to-day business activities. In other words, this phase involves preparing the business to respond when the disaster occurs. Readiness strategies allow the operator to hit the ground running, lets them leave the yard and make deliveries as soon as possible after the emergency is declared. As I said before, I think there's a fair bit of overlap between these categories, so for simplicity's sake, I'm going to group them together. I think that's easier than me saying, for reduction, follow steps 1, 2 and 3, and for readiness, take steps 4, 5 and 6. In preparing your business for an emergency response, the first thing you need to do is build capacity, which I'll define as your company's ability to deploy and deliver toilets to the scene and your ongoing ability to clean and service those units once they're on the ground. And I'll boil that down to four things. Toilets, transport, people and time. I'll take them one at a time. With toilets, you need to think of how many units do you have on hand that you can deploy at a moment's notice. We call this the float. As well as being available for emergencies, the float can also double up as your event fleet. That makes good sense because not many providers can stand the cost of several hundred toilets sitting idly in their shed or yard, not earning income. But how many is enough? Well, you can never have too many, but anything between 150 and 200 would certainly make you a contender as a larger scale emergency responder. At the time of 9-11, Mr John held a float of 1,000 units. As a company, they made a deliberate decision to build up to that number. It took them two or three years and they dispersed them between several depots to make them more versatile and easier to deploy. Regardless of how many you hold in the float, you need to know exactly what you've got in the yard and how many you can send out at any one time. Now they're not the same things. How many you have in the fleet is a simple head count. How many are in a fit state to deploy means you have to gather more information about their condition, cleanliness and state of repair. The keys to monitoring that status are having a unique asset number on every unit, whether it's a toilet, wash basin or a urinal, having a well-organised yard with a clear flow of information that allows you to keep track of those units and know whether they're in the yard, out on hire, damaged or in need of a clean. And proper systems in the yard, both on paper and on the computer if you use electronic records, that everybody knows, follows and respects. I'll break those down one by one as well. Asset numbering. I'm always amazed when I see restrooms that don't have a unique serial number because without them, it's impossible to know what is on a contract or not. There are lots of different ways you can do this. The easiest is with a Sharpie pen or indelible marker, but you can also use numbered metal tags, QR codes, or even engrave the plastic. The key is to make sure that each unit only carries one number and to tie that number into whatever software or system you use to process orders and generate invoices. It doesn't matter where you place them, but it will save a lot of time later if you put the number in the same place on every unit. My preferred location is on the top of the panel to the right-hand side of the door as you face the unit. The second issue I'm going to talk about is yard flow. Having stock in the yard is only part of the challenge. Just as much depends on having it all well organised. 
Ideally, stock will be stored at your main depot because that makes it easier to clean, inspect, load and deploy, but satellite yards can work well too. I like to see all the units stored in neat rows, back to back, doors facing out, with enough room between each set of rows that I can walk between them. I do that so I can see every number and open every door during a stock take or inspection. I know some operators don't leave a walkway so they save space and others store their units front to back. That definitely saves time when you're loading because you don't have to spin the units round to pick them up with a trolley or a forklift. But it also means they can't open the doors to look inside or check that they're clean and in good order. As I say, two rows back to back with the doors out is my preference. The third element there was systems. Because they happen in real time, emergencies tend to be chaotic and fast moving, which can make them really stressful. The only way you can survive and thrive in that environment is to have clear systems that everybody in your team knows, that everyone understands and that everybody follows. What do I mean by a system? Well, fundamentally, I'm talking about the way things are done. You could call these your standard operating procedures or your playbook rules. Although you can't legislate for every eventuality, these should cover as many of your business practices as possible, or at least they should describe how staff should act. They can't be random rules that you impose when somebody declares an emergency. Yes, they will include parts that can and should only be invoked when the emergency occurs, but the fundamentals should be woven into the everyday fabric of your business. And that's because in times of stress and duress, people will revert to established behaviours and they'll do what they know best. Let's use the float as an example. It's really important that everyone in the business respects the float at all times. Nobody should be taking units from the float for their routine day-to-day -day deliveries. If they do that, you might as well not bother to retain a float at all. Now, I do know that we've seen toilets from the float deployed during COVID where demand has been so high and new toilets that have been hard to find or slow to arrive. And to be honest, there probably weren't many other alternatives. While it makes good economic sense, it's actually had an impact on the events industry. This year, we've seen that fewer operators are able to supply toilets in large numbers. We've seen prices rise and some operators have even had to say they can't provide service to events that they've previously supplied. Whatever systems or processes you use, everything depends upon the clean flow of information between the driver, the yard and the office. That's where software like Service Core can really help. When toilets are deployed on site or returned from hire, Service Core can be used to log their location and status so that everyone in the team with access to that system can see where they are. It makes so much sense and it makes it much easier to keep track of what's going on. Another option is to use a playbook that contains all of this information. Make sure it includes a separate chapter on emergency response. You want fries with that? It is the most common example of an upsell. But what if the customer who pays your bill is not the same person using your services? How would the customer know that the services they order are going to be enough? It is a typical scenario for portable restrooms operators. That's why we created Airboat. By placing three colorful QR smileys inside a portable toilet or a VIP trailer, AirVote is helping pros upsell their services. When the customer feedback shows that the facilities just don't hold up between the cleaning cycles, bringing this information to your customer turns the tables. Upsell becomes a natural part of your customer service. To learn more about AirVote, 
go to air-vote.com. The next issue I want to cover is how you move large numbers of restrooms in a short space of time to meet the emergency need. Most operators will be quite skilled at moving smaller numbers of units on a daily or weekly basis. It comes with the territory, but moving tens, dozens or even hundreds of units requires additional experience, equipment and expertise. Of course, you could rely on a third-party hauler who would collect the units from your depot and deliver them to site. That would certainly mean that you didn't need to buy, lease or maintain trucks and trailers. But in my experience, a third-party hauler won't handle your toilets with as much care as you and your team. An outside hauler may not be able to collect or deliver toilets at short notice or at the times you require. And if there's been a major disaster such as an earthquake, it's probable that they'll have their own issues to deal with first. And a third-party hauler is unlikely to record the asset numbers or the location of every toilet they deliver. They just won't have the time. And if they did, they'd present you with a hefty bill. A B-train truck and trailer combination in New Zealand can normally carry between 28 and 32 toilets, but they don't come cheap. Standard rates for haulage here are about $200 per hour plus sales tax plus mileage. And remember that the hauler will charge from the minute they leave their yard to the minute they arrive back. Any extra time they spend recording toilet numbers is certainly going straight onto their invoice. A better option for me is to build the capacity to move a large number of toilets in-house using your own people, trucks and trailers. The largest toilet trailer I've ever used held 18 units. It had a 10 metre deck but it could be towed behind a pickup. If we pulled it with a flat deck truck we could move 28 units in one load, the same as a B-train but at a fraction of the cost. In addition to that we had four rigid trailers that would hold 10 units each they provided a great option because they were designed to hold toilets securely without using straps, strops or tie-downs and that saved a huge amount of time when it came to loading and unloading. Again, they were easily towed behind a pickup and altogether that meant we could use 58 units in one go with utes and over 80 units if we used vacuum trucks and a flat deck. Of course, towing, especially with long trailers, does require skill. The long trailer I mentioned had an articulated drawbar so it needed a driver who had the skill to reverse. That meant not everybody in the team was able to tow it. But that's easily fixed and you'd be surprised at how quickly our summer event crew got to grips with towing long loads. The third element that's key to emergency response on my list was people. When disaster strikes, everybody is keen to help. We saw it on 9-11 when off-duty firefighters rushed to their stations or went straight to the scene. While you can't deny their sense of duty and commitment, past experience shows that emergency response work will extend for days or weeks. So it's really important that you pace you and your staff so that you can maintain adequate levels of cover as the response goes on. To do that, somebody needs to take control. In the military or emergency services, it's normal for somebody to declare that they have command. You need to do the same in your business. Decide who's in charge and tell everybody that the named person is the one making the decisions. But at the same time, you don't want staff calling you to approve every trivial detail. The answer is to give them the authority to make the right decision by setting out a policy or ground rules that you want everybody to follow. And if you decide to run with a committee, do it properly. Identify a chair and give them the final say. While you're at it, set up a written diary so that you can keep an accurate record of everything that happens in real time and call it the captain's log. 
I'm sharing this because good paperwork, effective systems and proper procedures will give structure to what is inevitably going to be a confusing and rapidly changing situation. Once you've got your plans, you need to identify the people on your team who have the right attitude and skills to be part of the emergency response. And not everybody does. That doesn't make them bad people. Far from it. It's actually a good thing. You're going to need some people to manage the regular day-to-day business while the emergency response unfolds. Just remember that the people who are not involved in the emergency may feel isolated or left out, and that's really not good for team morale. We'll go over this in more detail in future episodes, but it is absolutely essential to do everything you can to make everyone feel part of the team, whether they have an active role or not. Hold regular team meetings or maybe share breakfast. It doesn't matter how you do it, just bring everybody together and remember to ask people how they're getting on. And don't forget to include the admin team or your salespeople in this too. My final advice here is to reach out and build positive relationships with other providers, even if they're your direct competitors. Remember that in times of duress, it pays to have friends. That way you can share the load, whether it's toilets, trucks, people or space. Even if they don't send toilets or trucks to the scene, they might help service your regular calls, they might lend you toilets, or they might even let you discharge waste at their facility if they have one. The last element I want to focus on today is time. In the event of an emergency, you're never going to have enough time. Everything happens suddenly and without warning. It will all happen at once. Even the smallest jobs will take longer than you expect, and your equipment is bound to fail or break just when you need it most. You can't turn back in time and you can't make more time, but you can create rules, systems and procedures that allow you and your team to make really efficient use of the time you do have when it really matters most. I'll give you some examples. Keep your float nearby clean and ready to load. Even better, keep your trailers loaded so they're ready to go at short notice. Know where you can fill with water. If possible, get permission to use fire hydrants and get hold of a hydrant adapter or key. Find out where you can discharge waste and make sure that the drivers have access and keep your trucks well stocked. Keep ample supplies in reserve so that you can meet any unexpected demand. After the Kaikoura earthquakes, the authorities deployed over 200 toilets to the scene, but they didn't send any blue sachets. That's because the company leading the response didn't have enough stock at the time and the supplier couldn't get anything down because the roads were closed. In the end, another operator loaned their supplies and the TV news crew took them up by helicopter when they flew in to film a segment for the evening news. Most local councils, police and fire departments have an emergency planning officer who is responsible for making sure that everything comes together when it matters most. If you're a restroom operator and you want to be involved, don't wait for their call. Find out who they are and go and see them now while you've got time. When the chief of police or the mayor needs toilets, it will save everyone a lot of time if they know they can call on you. In next week's show, Dave Andres is going to share some of the lessons he learnt from 9-11 and we'll talk about how portable restroom operators should price their services for an emergency response. If you're a restroom operator who's had experience in dealing with an emergency, please get in touch. I'd love to tell your story through the podcast. Recording is a really simple process, we can do it remotely, and I'll send you an advanced copy for approval before the show is aired. Just email info at getflushed.online. If you enjoy Get Flushed, please do your bit to help me grow the audience. All you have to do is tell one family member, friend, colleague or stranger about the show and encourage them to listen in. Get Flushed is available on all major podcast platforms, most of the smaller platforms and through our homepage, getflushed.online. 
If you want to support the show financially, you can sign up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash get flushed, where a very modest monthly donation will get you early access to every episode and unlock bonus content that's not available anywhere else. If you don't want to make a regular payment, you can donate through PayPal. Visit our homepage, getflushed.online, and click the pop-out on the left-hand side of the screen, and then click on the PayPal button. It really doesn't matter how much or how little you donate. Every cent will go towards producing the show and buying things like extra mugs to give away to guests and any friends we meet along the way. Get Flushed has also been nominated for the New Zealand Podcast Awards and I'd really appreciate your support in voting for the show once the portal opens later this month. Once again, thank you for your time. I've been Pete and you've been listening to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast.